Hey friends, I'm really excited about this week's episode. I have my very good friend, David Dwight, who's the senior pastor at Hope Church that's going to join me. And we're going to do something that's a little bit different. We're going to have a deep dive into all of the things about Easter week that are so hard for us to get in today's culture. So we're going to dive deeply into uh, this idea of the cross and why is that significant? What does this mean to us? How can something that happened 2,000 years ago be important for us to today? Is it important that we really believe these things happen? So we're going to touch on so many things that are those struggles that we think inside of our head that sometimes we don't want to admit as struggles for us to understand and believe. So I think there's going to be a ton for anybody who is just curious and trying to understand more and make this Easter week something valuable. So I think it's going to be a great episode, and I'm excited to have David uh, with me this week. David, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the really fun experiences that I remember from probably 20, 25 years ago was— Of course I remember it. Of course you do, yeah. <laughs> what when, is it? When when you and I sat and had did a Sunday school class mm-hmm. at Third Church, mm-hmm. and you and I just sat up and had this long, unplanned, unscripted mm-hmm. conversation about elements of faith, mm-hmm. and it was— it was almost like the podcast before podcasts existed. It was yes, a conversation like a live podcast before such a thing. Yeah, exactly. And it was so much fun because it was uh we had no idea where it was going to go. We had no idea if it was going to work, mm-hmm. but it was just this uh great conversation mm-hmm. and we had the joy of having breakfast together mm. a lot of times. And I feel like those are almost like podcasts, just these conversations where we share things. Right. So I'm really glad to have you here, and you were on the earlier version of Space for Life, and uh, if anybody wants to go back and listen to that, it tells a lot of your story, and that would be fun. We'll put that in the show notes. Mm. But I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation today, and it's going to be about um, Easter, which when we air this, hopefully this will be a week before Easter. And uh, to be honest, this comes out of my own musings, uh, because I think Easter, in a sense like Christmas, is one of those very, very important days that uh, for those who are people of faith, they know it's supposed to be very, very important. Mm -hmm. But underneath the surface, they have to admit, I don't really get a lot of what this is about. Mm-hmm. And so I've always had some of those thoughts, those mm-hmm. questions, those confusions about Easter over the years, but it's almost like you kind of want to hide and I don't want to admit that I don't yeah. get that because it seems like everybody else gets it and yeah. they talk about it all the time yeah. and are so moved by it, but I don't really understand this. Right. So, you know, whether whether we call this Easter for dummies or Easter, I don't get it. Uh, I want to kind of almost bring my questions, which I hope will be some other people's questions about aspects 
of Easter and the language we use and the meaning of it Mm -hmm. and see if we can kind of unpack it and bring it home Mm -hmm. um, to understand it better, Mm -hmm. but also to understand what it means for us. And I think that personally, I think you're like really gifted at bringing things home. So in terms of conversation. So anyway, I'm, I'm excited about this. Me too. Thanks for the invitation. You're mentioning sort of um, people knowing something's important, but maybe being afraid to ask questions about it. And I imagine we'll kind of get down this track a little bit. But I just know that I'm a person who um, can't just take something at face value. It's never worked for me. And I want to try to kind of find the right lane in saying this. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I just know for me, I just can't sit and hear people say something because I'm immediately going to have a whole bunch of questions and I can't just nod and go along with it because everybody's nodding and going along with it. Even from the time I was a little kid, my parents sort of talk about this. I think I mentioned when we did the, the prior podcast, I was in a confirmation class when I was like 13 years old. And the teacher's teaching all this stuff. And I didn't really go to church much. That's another story. But the confirmation class was a church thing you're supposed to do. And like every other sentence, I'm thinking, well, how does that work? And does that make any sense? That doesn't work for me. Can you explain that? And I remember looking back, I'm the kid in the class just like, keep raising my hand, keep raising my hand. And I remember feeling like inner conflict because I'm thinking, did none of you have any of these questions? Exactly. So either I'm like, am I the stupidest guy in the room? And you all already know this and it's all settled for you. Or are you kind of, because we're in this church setting, intimidated or afraid, or you're just not supposed to ask or whatever comes with all that churchiness. I don't know my personality. I just couldn't do that. Yeah. But the point is um, for me, when it comes to Christian faith, and then later, when I was 19, almost 20 years old, and, and really came into a place of saying yes, um, I couldn't do that until I addressed a whole bunch of questions and came uh, over the hurdles of a bunch of stuff about which I was really skeptical. So it's just a little bit of background, right? I mean, I feel like I am a skeptic by nature, and in a very strange way, I am on the one hand now a committed Christian who's still a skeptic. Right. And and I feel the same way. I feel like, you know, I've I've been a Christian for probably almost 50 years now. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit there's still significant things that I feel like I only understand kind of the the very top of the iceberg piece of it and that there's all these parts that I don't understand. And because I've been in the church for so long and even even taught, it's like, I'm supposed to understand this, but I still don't totally get it. And so when, when I decided to kind of restart this podcast, one of, one of the first ideas was, oh, wow, this would be really great. And for the very reasons that you said, I thought, you would be perfect to help us unpack and take theology and make it 
real and personal and accessible. And yeah, so. and we won't figure it all out, but hopefully we'll we'll get some things thought through and talked out right. that will help us all move a, a little step closer. So what I've done is I've listed a, a couple of uh, phrases, thoughts, questions that are phrases and terminology and symbolism mm. that I think is hard for us today. And I just want to kind of throw them out and let's let's see where it goes. Yeah. I remember for years when I was a young Christian seeing um, letters that were on uh, furnishings in a church, and I had no clue what those letters mean. For instance, um, some people will have seen a cross, usually it's a large ceremonial cross, and it has the letters I-N-R-I on it. And I'm like, Inri? Inri? What is Inri? I have no idea what Inri is, right? Only much later did I learn that those are the first Greek letters of a phrase and essentially translated to English. The I is Jesus. The N is Nazarene or Nazareth. The R is from regium, which means king. And the I, the next I, is the way you would spell Jew, Judaism or Jew. So the I-N-R-I stands for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So if you read the Gospels, you can read, oh, wow, okay. It says that Pilate posted on the cross, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. But you just go to church and you see I-N-R-I on this big ceremonial cross, and I'm like, I have no clue what that means, and and I don't know why it's there. Well, it's a perfect example because to me, that's what I, I'm hoping this whole conversation is going to be about. Is uh, you you see those Greek letters, and they kind of look like English letters, but you would have no idea what they mean right. without translation. Right. And to me, that's part of there are all these aspects of. Easter, right. the death and the resurrection, that still need for us today translation, yeah. because we don't understand all that's behind it, both historically, theologically, and personally. So it's it's perfect. So let's dive right into kind of the the first big image, and 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 that's the image of the cross. So. Uh, we know, and uh, I think I'm speaking accurately, historically in documents outside of the Bible, it talks about crucifixions and people dying on the cross and, and Jesus dying on the cross. So we know that something happened, but the cross today seems something that's far different from what is talked about in the in the Bible and in uh, in the Gospels and in the and in the letters, it's a fashion symbol. Sometimes it's people of no faith that will have it tattooed. And so I think I think I'd love to just hear your thoughts on what what is a better right understanding of the cross and what it means, 
what it meant and what it means for us. So <clears throat> crosses and crucifixions were a common execution tool in the Roman Empire. And it was a brutal way to execute somebody, but it was the Roman Empire's way of showing its strength and its force and intimidating people who would in any way challenge the presence of the Roman strength. So um, people who are familiar with the Bible are probably familiar with the Roman occupation of you know Israel, Palestine, that area of the world. Um, we'd probably be much less familiar with the Roman occupation of a lot of other parts of the world where they also occupied. But <clears throat> the Romans were known to crucify um, rebels, people who presented a challenge to their authority. So try to just give a little context and not go too far afield. Um, crucifixions were not uncommon. So this is like one thing that when I first learned about it, it's a little bit reorienting, right? Because you hear so much about Jesus, Jesus Christ on a cross, and it feels like it was like this one singular historic event. Um, my understanding is in the Roman Empire, um, the Roman regime crucified somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people a year in the whole, in the whole Roman power structure. Um, in the context of Jesus's day, some information that I find really interesting, the, the Roman occupation, a lot of Jewish people despised it. Like this is our homeland and you've come in as outside occupiers and you're dominating and stealing and taking and taxing and the whole bet. And so there were these Jewish nationalists, the biblical word appears a little bit in the gospels, zealots. Even one of Jesus's apostles was called Simon the Zealot, which is a really interesting question. The zealots were like Jewish nationalist freedom fighters. And, and they, were, they were serious. I mean, the Romans would have considered them terrorists. And um, it was a largely underground, but also very well known, its existence, uh, of this underground Jewish resistance. To add context, it was understood that more or less the, the, the hive the headquarters of this Jewish resistance was in Galilee, up north of Jerusalem. This was known to be the hotbed of where this resistance was, kind of its headquarters. So this starts adding flavor when we learn that Jesus was from Galilee. That would have landed in a certain way to Roman leaders, because they're like, that doesn't sound good to me, because Galilee is a hotbed of this problematic region. Okay, so Jesus comes from that part of, of this part of the world. Um, it's why there's a lot of emphasis in the Gospels. Oh, you're a Galilean, right? Oh, you're from Galilee, right? Because everybody would have been like, those are the badlands. We all know that that's, that's not a good place. So is it ironic or sovereign that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, happens to come from this place that was known as this terrorist hotbed. Hmm. So that's part of the context. So when Jesus is on, uh, on trial before Pontius Pilate, um, Pilate's concerned 
because uh, I don't like what I hear about and know about what comes out of Galilee. So that adds a lot of context to it. Then, of course, you have the trial of Jesus, and then he's crucified. My understanding is that generally the vertical beams that the Romans used for crucifixions um, were in place. A, a person who was going to be crucified would often be made to carry the horizontal beam out to the place of the execution. Most of the time, I think when we see crosses, um, they're symbolic. They're, they're too small to be what a cross really would have been. Probably the beams would have been like uh, eight by eight or 10 by 10, you know, big pieces of, of wood. So if you had a eight foot beam, <clears throat> which might've been a horizontal beam of a cross that was a 10 by 10, it probably weighed 90 or 100 pounds, maybe more. So Jesus is taken outside of Jerusalem. He's crucified outside the city walls, and he's crucified with two other people. The Bible calls them robbers, but the Greek word is a little more elastic than that. I think it's more persuasive that they were zealots, that they were also guys who were part of this resistance movement. So a couple of questions come to my mind and observations. One as I understand it, so so the Romans used crucifixion to hold everybody down. And yet in the end, with the crucifixion of of Jesus, the Romans, Pilate, Herod, were ready to let him go. And the the Jewish religious leaders who would have been in a sense so opposed to crucifixion because it it represented Rome's authority over them, used that vehicle to take care of Jesus. Yeah. So there's kind of an irony in the thing that probably the Jewish people most despised being the tool yeah. for it. So uh, in the scheme of things, if, if we now just step way outside, big picture, um, and we assume and have the discussion that, that God is somehow in this. Why was a cross and crucifixion the means by which Jesus, that God chose, in a sense, for Jesus to die? Why was, why was even the suffering necessary? It, it seems so... Um, tactile tactile in some sense it's like I, I don't get why this is important to the work that supposedly uh easter is about yeah so easter of course is on the quote other side of the cross um doing some reading recently i read a sentence that was very meaningful to me it said when we are looking to see what God is doing throughout the course of what we might call Easter weekend, it's important for us to see that the crucifixion and the resurrection are the two pieces of one thing. So that's really valuable to me because God, through Christ's death on the cross, 
is initiating forgiveness to us through Christ dying in our place. And that is God's intention to make it possible for us to experience complete forgiveness and a reconciled, restored relationship with God. But that's not the only thing, because if we only had that, you'd only have Jesus' death. And theoretically, that sacrifice does express what's needed for that forgiveness. But the resurrection is the vindication and the victory that speaks to the fact that this sacrifice and this forgiveness are real, they're efficacious, and that God has worked in them to bring about our forgiveness, one, and then give us the promise that through Christ we will be raised and resurrected as well, that heaven is our home, that we have eternity in a relationship with God as his, uh, his own children. And we can have that relationship because our sin is forgiven through Christ's death on the cross. Okay, now you can ask what you want to ask. There's a lot of layers to that. Right. But, but, but that's what's going on. You asked about suffering. You know, why couldn't, um, why couldn't they have killed Jesus another way that wasn't so drawn out and difficult? Um, I don't know the specific answer to, you know, we could talk about other ways the Romans could execute him. What we do have is a lot of significant prophecy in the Old Testament that precedes Jesus's life by hundreds and hundreds of years that speak about the fact that God's Messiah um, will be crucified. The, the Old Testament phrase is hung on a tree, but the New Testament has no doubt that that phrase um, means and connects to the crucifixion. And some of the most beautiful writing of the Old Testament, in my opinion, is Isaiah 53. And it speaks about how the Messiah who would come to save God's people would be a suffering servant who is acquainted with bitterest grief. And that is hugely meaningful because when we're in need in life, when we're in deep need, we need either help with suffering or we need relief from our sin. We need one or both of those. And to know that God's Messiah comes into the world as a suffering servant is the biblical word, right. who is acquainted with bitterest grief. Jesus experienced betrayal, humiliation, mockery, physical pain, torture, desertion. I've often thought about about the only form of suffering I can think of that we human beings suffer that he didn't was some kind of physical disease, some physical disease that you know killed him or took his life. Uh, he did not experience that. But pretty much every other form of human suffering he experienced. So what we can begin to know is this, this son of God dying on the cross for us provides us relief for the weight and the burden and the bondage of our past and our sin. And he is present as one who has suffered as we do and who can redeem the suffering, who can use our suffering for good. Doesn't mean it's not really, really hard. 
And it doesn't mean we try to make it sound happy. But if suffering is part of our human experience, he can use it for good, which becomes a massively important idea of the cross. The cross was the darkest instrument known to man in his day. And, and God uses the darkest thing, and it is the place where he launches forgiveness and redemption. So what, what we begin to see is this horrible symbol. You know, these, these, these beams that people would carry, they would have blood all over them, right? Like, I, I've often thought of that. When Jesus picked up his crossbar, it probably had blood all over it from previous crucifixions. Hmm. There's nothing pleasant about this. It's just awful. So the fact that God can use something awful, and it's the place where he initiates forgiveness and uh, redeeming work, is a signature of the cross. It's like from the worst God initiates his redeeming work and expresses his love. Yeah, I like that. I was talking with someone actually this morning telling about this podcast that we were going to talk about, and and he brought up the movie from several years ago, The Passion of Christ with Mel Gibson, and how unsettling and disturbing that movie was because it probably so much more accurately betrayed how awful the crucifixion really was relative to our more tame versions. So this is a great example to me, and, and here's where I, I have to try to like calm down. Coming out of that movie, a bunch of people said, that was just horrible, that was just so disturbing. And I said, what was disturbing about it? And and people would say just how awful the crucifixion is. And honestly, what I was thinking is, you never thought about that? Right. You, what were you thinking it was? And so this is one of these things where I know we all have different backgrounds. Lots of us have been sort of raised in church, and I completely understand it. We sort of go with what's been presented us in the narratives of church life. But I think part of this podcast is invite people to go behind that and go deeper than that. Exactly. You know, we, we have learned to almost become inoculated to the whole story and the meaning. And, and one of the things I'm getting from what you're saying, which is helpful to me, is that behind the realities of the crucifixion, there are many, many layers to connect with. Mm. You know, there's this this layer of forgiveness that's talked about that is accomplished in, in some amazing way through the cross. There's also this connection with our own suffering that at times we desperately need to feel like God connects and understands our suffering. Mm -hmm. There's aspects of the story like the the betrayal mm -hmm. that there are times we feel so betrayed. So it, it feels like um, what's helpful to me is to realize that in 
Easter week and in the death and in the resurrection that they are, it, it's like an onion. There are many layers totally. for us to get to, and we can understand one layer, and then we can come back to it and go, oh, wow, this is, this is incredible. Yeah. You know, not only do we understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, understands our suffering, right. but then because of the resurrection, he actually can do something to redeem it right. because he's not dead in the grave. Right. God so, has power over it. He's it, bigger than it. Right. And so there are just all of these different layers. And so it invites me to uh, not worry so much about having to figure it out. I'm I'm so wired to try to figure things out. And I think there's some freedom in this to, to say, uh, I don't have the opportunity in the same way you do to go away for... Uh, we can, and, and to really absorb in quiet so much of the death of what's happened. Uh, but yet, if I'm willing to be quiet mm -hmm. in Easter week, if I'm willing to open up, I might allow a lot of things to happen mm -hmm. and understanding that wouldn't happen if I'm just trying to intellectually understand it. Yeah. I find myself a bit perplexed sometimes, and um, I, I am a person who believes that our souls are really, really hungry, regardless of whether you're a religious person or not. My, my understanding is uh, God's given all of us a soul, and our souls are really hungry. I particularly think our souls are hungry for what is— um, meaningful, and I'll use the word holy, what is holy, because I believe God made our souls, and I believe that our souls being sort of the essence of who we are, they come most alive when they're yeah. in union with God. God is a lot of beautiful things, but a couple of things that he is are he's deeply meaningful, and he's holy. And I think our souls are really hungry for this. Problem is, we live in a really shallow culture, right? Pop culture in America is um, consumed with what Kim Kardashian wore to some party in Hollywood. And our souls, over enough time, are just withering. And we don't know it. Your soul doesn't protest and send you, you know, protest messages except in a way that I believe, I really do think a good bit of the depression and anxiety that we see in our culture is our souls withering because they're hungry for what's deeper. Okay, so here's a little bit of the catch-22. Um, when we live in a shallow culture and it trains us that way, a lot of people will sort of have a knee-jerk aversion to a deep conversation. People say, man, that's over my head. Man, that's just too deep for me. Man, you guys are talking about that. I would love to try to encourage people to, to not take that at face value. Um, because when we start talking about the depth, the meaning, and the holiness of Good Friday and Easter, it's like our souls start coming alive. 
And, and yet to understand them, we do have to talk about deeper stuff. Right. So on the one hand, we're like, whoa, that's over my head. I don't want to go there. But I kind of want to say, your soul wants to go there. Please, please allow, please take your soul there because your soul is so hungry for this kind of meaning. Well, and it's, it's really the core of uh, what underlies the whole name of this podcast, Space for Life, because we're in a culture that has eliminated all space. It's shallow. It doesn't think deeply. It, it just moves very fast. And and I'm so convinced that we need that space. And, and it isn't going to happen naturally. Mm-hmm. But that space, that time for thinking deeply about our souls mm-hmm. and giving our souls the oxygen mm-hmm. for things to happen is the only way we're going to find life. Well, and and what a great time to be doing this podcast. So the day we're recording today is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent, 40 days in preparation to going to and being with Christ on the cross and then the resurrection. When you use the word space, reflection, etc., I mean, you couldn't come up with better words that come with Lent than that. Right. Yeah, it, it's absolutely true. So, uh, I mean, we're not even... St- close to getting through a lot of the things that do we need like lightning round yeah exactly <laughs> but i want to i want to kind of at least touch on two uh two things and I'll, I'll put them both out there and um we can we can go with it one is i think i also want to touch on the resurrection uh is it important that we believe the resurrection really happened if we say it is important. And why is that important? What does that resurrection 2,000 years ago mean for us? So that's, that was two, two questions, but two questions. And then one uh, I would also just almost like to end with is as we go into Easter week in all of our various places as we come to this, there's places of disconnection with what it's about, this place of struggling with shallowness and busyness, uh, this place of some people for whom this is so meaningful, this, this wide, wide range. What would you offer to people as a new way of entering into the week wherever they are? Lent or Holy Week? Holy Week. Um, you know how sometimes uh, practice is uh, giving something up for Lent? <clears throat> sometimes you and I have played around with this, right? Like, um, you know, I'm going to give up. And and the joke is you're going to give up something that you don't like anyway, right? Liver. Yeah, I'm going to give up. <laughs> I'm going to give up chicken liver for, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give up, you know, escargot for Lent or something like that. Um how about, this is hard because it's a double negative. I'm going to give up not giving my soul any space, meaning I'm going to give my soul space. Um, maybe some people might say, that's what I want to give up for Lent. Um, this is word playing, but spacelessness. I'm going to give that up for Lent. What does that mean? It means I'm going to intentionally make space to do what? Mm read, think, reflect, write, pray, 
any or all of those, um, some combination, whatever, um, our souls are going to thank us for it. Um, so that's a thought. And, and, and if Lent is 40 days, if it's just too much, too long, then maybe think about that same idea, but for what we call Holy Week. Well, and the beauty of that is that anybody, regardless of where they are in faith, wherever they are in the Christian faith, wherever they are in their understanding of Easter, can do that. So if we, if we took that, and let's zero it in just a little bit more and say we're going to give up spacelessness, what would that look like? like for you? What would it be like, for instance, to say, as a practice for this Holy Week, I'm going to take 30 minutes each morning of this Holy Week, and whether it's read through the Gospels of the crucifixion, or pray, or just sit quietly, whatever it is, to give up spacelessness for 30 minutes each day, or you could do an hour, or you could say, I'm going to do this on Good Friday. But my my sense is that's such a, a good takeaway that could be impactful for anybody, but most particularly if we make it in some sense specific as to how how am I going to do that practice? What time? What form yeah. in such a way that it could perhaps open up the soul. So uh, here are a couple of thoughts that come to me. Um, the Gospels, one of the things that's interesting about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I won't get this exactly right, but you've got the Gospels are about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. About half, 50%, of the content that appears in those four books cover the last three days of his life. Hmm. So you're like, okay, wow, look at that proportion. So we get lots about Jesus went to this village and that village and he healed and all that kind of stuff. And that's all very meaningful. But the overwhelming majority of the content is about the last three days of his life. Maybe, maybe four Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there's nothing about Saturday and then Sunday. Um, so how about, uh, somebody might say, could just give me a little practical thing here, here are a couple thoughts. If you're inclined to write, um, take some time and write an honest prayer to God each day, whether you do it throughout the entirety of Lent or whether you do it Holy Week. And people might say sometimes, well, I'm not sure what to say. And what I would just say is write an honest prayer to God. So your honest prayer might be, Hey God, I want to know more about what this means. I don't really get it but I think I'm supposed to write this prayer. So my prayer is, will you help me know more what it means? You just write it. When you write it, you've got a record of it. That'd be one possibility. Another one would be read a chapter um, of one of the gospels that gets into the last days of Jesus' life. Um, so there, there are a host of different sort of simple practices. I'm mindful and I get reminded periodically um, you and I are past the stage of life of having little kids running around the house and being in all the maximal turbulence. So let's say um, uh, a, a, a man or woman is listening to this podcast 
and they're 40 years old and they got four kids under the age of 14. They're like, are you guys out of your mind? Like carve out time. They're like, <laughs> not a chance. So we want to be sympathetic to that reality. Um, but if you can carve out some time, I think it's going to be really valuable. Well, and we haven't touched that much on, uh, on the resurrection, but I think within all of Holy Week, from certainly Thursday through Sunday, there's this incredible breadth of life that happens, from betrayal to suffering to life and joy. It's this incredible range. And if it's like the lid of humanity gets taken off in and one, it all spills out. Exactly. And if somehow we could just enter in to that breath, even if we don't figure it out, even if there are no conclusions, but you know, I love what we're doing here because it's so easy when you're in the church and when you're, you know, someone who suggests that they're a person of faith to fall into language and thoughts without ever really challenging yourself to say, what difference does this make? What difference is it making in my life? And I have such, I had this, these competing things going on within me that this means so much, mm -hmm. that this week means so utterly much and that I just don't get it. I just don't hardly have a, a slight sense of it. So can, can, can I take a few minutes and try to tie together what I think are like the core threads yeah, to, great. to bring the different pieces together? Okay, this is it's probably going to be a lot, but to me, this is essential content. Okay, um, how does Jesus Christ dying on a cross enable forgiveness for you and me in the year 2023? Um, that only works if Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Okay, because he is the one who is uniquely able to bring God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness to human beings. You can't have an ordinary human being who does that because they don't bring God's forgiveness to human beings. Um, also, if he's a, quote, ordinary human being with sin in his own life, his, his, his death as a sacrifice for us doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. So when Jesus was first introduced by John the Baptist, John introduces him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so there's an hour on each thing I'm saying here, and we're going to make it quick. So for, for us to be able to gain forgiveness through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, he has to be fully God and fully man. Okay, like helpful, but what about the 2,000-year gap between when that happened and now? If he's God, God is eternal. And while Jesus came and lived in time, he, God lives outside of time. Eternity isn't a long time. It's timelessness. It's outside of time. So in a sense, the time dimension doesn't matter to God. It's, it's really a non-entity. It matters to us. 
we live in it and we see everything through the progression of time, it doesn't matter to God. In that sense, his death could even be meaningful for those who lived before he died. Yes, that's another really significant conversation. So for the forgiveness to be able to happen, it has to be fully God and fully man. For this man, Jesus Christ on the cross, to be fully God and fully man, the virgin birth has to be true. If the virgin birth isn't true, if Jesus had two human parents, he's only a human being. He is not fully God and fully man. Now, if you hear this and you're a thinking person, you're going you're gonna to think, this virgin birth thing, really, you're kidding me. You're telling me that this experience happened and this woman named Mary became pregnant without a, a, a husband, a man involved in the process. The answer to that is yes, and that's because God intervened. Okay, so you say, how did God intervene? By his creative power, by his spirit. You're like, that's far-fetched Greek mythology to me. It is a challenge to our sensibilities, but if God created everything, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if he created everything, every life form, every breathing thing, then bringing about this conception in a woman, it's not beyond his grasp, albeit remarkably unusual. Okay, so you got to confess that. You can't just say, oh, well, yeah, sure, virgin birth, no big deal. Huge deal, remarkably unusual, but an absolutely essential piece for Jesus to be Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. So the virgin birth is essential. Then you have Jesus Christ on the cross. Then you have uh, his death. He paid the price of death, which is what sin earns. And he gave us his life and righteousness, his sinlessness. Well, how do we know that's true? Because he was raised to life on the third day. It is the vindication. It is the seal of, yes, it's true. God has um, brought this truth to fruition, to reality. So is it important that Jesus actually rose from the dead bodily? It, it's essential. I've heard people say, whether Jesus rose from the dead or not isn't really important. It's just whether the idea of his being raised um, elicits hope and faith in you. Um, no. If he wasn't raised from the dead bodily, we have no Christianity. Nobody would have ever heard of Jesus Christ if there was not a bodily resurrection. Once he's raised, the Bible is just falling all over itself to emphasize that he was seen after the resurrection. He was seen, he was touched, he was hugged, he was, people were with him, people ate meals with him. Um, the Bible is falling all over itself to assure this. So for the skeptic, which I am, you could say, yeah, okay, but there's a lot of mythology that could write that kind of narrative. Yes, but what I would say is, if you look at the transformation in those disciples, 12 guys who were tentative and scared after the resurrected Jesus, and they now understand what this truth means and the implications of it, those guys are completely transformed, and they all die for testifying to this truth. If you've been put up to a ruse and you know it's a ruse, you'll carry it out until the stakes get really high. And when the stakes get really high, you're like, okay, uncle, I'm out. 
the stakes don't get higher than you're going to die for this message. And all 12 of them did so willingly because they had come to understand that it was absolutely true. Okay, so a little final tale on the dog. It is their understanding that it's absolutely true that was their prevailing conviction. About eight months ago, somebody said to me, the church needs to teach Christians how to stand up to persecution. Now, people bring this phrase and they talk about it, and some people say this is coming in America, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, admittedly, this is a hot button for me. The way the disciples stood up to the persecution was their absolute conviction and understanding of the truth of this. So somebody's saying, well, teach me persecution techniques. That's not going to hold up. If we can help Christians really understand the truth of what is happening in who Jesus is and what he's brought about for us, that's the core of the issue. That's great. Really appreciate that. And it, and it highlights, uh, it, it sends like a, a laser beam on both the difficulty of realizing that what bookmarks the Christian faith is a belief in two things that are unbelievable. That are miraculous. The miraculous. Remarkably they, extraordinary. Okay. They they are incredibly hard. And and I think it's great to encourage people to look at that. As I know you did as someone who was very skeptical to say, you know, this is this is really hard for me to grasp. And I don't take it lightly. I'm not going to just pretend that I'm going along with it. Right that this is a big deal. And I think that is what's, to me, so exciting about entering in with the space that we talked about into Holy Week to be able to say, I'm going to really open myself up to, to that reality, both to my struggle with it and the truth of it. So thanks so much. I think we we hardly touched on so many things, but I hope it's going to be a, a, a useful way to help people make uh, the deepest place in themselves for this Easter week. Yeah, I hope people might be helped by it, and I hope that it makes a small contribution to their experience of worship and gratitude in their relationship with God, particularly when we come to Good Friday and Easter. Yeah. Thanks so much. You bet.